will be damned if the same politicians who refuse to act then are going to try to come back today. The real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. A system of justice will be the richer for diversity of background and experience. All right, Caitlin, we're in the Bronx and the bikers are out. They're here. So They're that- basically also our like co-stars. Oh, absolutely. Everything we do. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you can hear BMX bikers in the background of every single thing that we do. They don't sleep. They don't no. rest. They're just <laughs> always out here on their BMX bikes. Yes, because they're actually a metaphor for my anxiety. They don't sleep. They don't rest. They don't stop. They just keep annoying me. Yeah, yeah very true. <laughs> anyway... Hello, everybody. It's me, Miss Cracker. I'm here with my co-pilot, Caitlin, and it's time for She's a Woman. It's a podcast for every human being who looks into the mirror and says, She's a woman! And I think it's safe to say that it's a podcast exclusively for nerds. Every week on this podcast, we talk to incredible women of all kinds from all walks of life and invite them to share their stories with you, our incredible listeners. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. Caitlin, I think we should start the podcast off today by telling them a a story from our recent life. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. This is a good story. (laughs) This is a good story. So will you describe for them the bus stop diner where we go to get our coffee every day? So our studio space that we rent is in the Bronx in like the garbage district. Yeah. Where it's just only garbage and like long haul truckers that stop to like, like drop off their load. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. Yeah. And it's like, not just like, oh, it's so much garbage here, but there's literally like trash processing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the, and it's just, it mostly just looks deserted for the most part. It's like deserted except for like giant trucks and then garbage sorting buildings. Yeah. And then on the corner, there's this small little diner that truly looks like a diner, like the most dinery diner yeah. <laughs> you can imagine. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just on the corner and it's a small place and it's like the only place to get any sort of food for miles. Yeah, for miles. So we started going there because we were like, okay, we need our coffee or we need a snack and there's no other option. So let's go to this diner. And it's the whole staff is dudes, men. Yeah. Like dudes who wear like backwards hats. <laughs> yeah. And then the the other patrons in the diner are like literally truckers, truckers who are yeah. like stopping in to get afternoon beers or whatever, or sandwiches like or morning beers, <laughs> right? Or morning beers. We've seen some early starts <laughs> and, um, and it's just like me and cracker are so out of place whenever we go in there to get a coffee because like it's all these like macho trucker dudes and then there's like us who are like in like pink outfits or something and right. we ju- and with like high voices and we just like we really stick out and um it's always an experience and we go there right? yeah that's, did i describe it you described well, it perfectly and it's like for the, all of those reasons that's why i've never gone there in drag because i'm like i will do a lot of things in drag but i'm not about to walk past 
a recycling complex. Yeah. If ever you're in drag and we want coffee, I'll go by myself because we're like, we're not going to go in drag to, in the, to the truck stop or yeah. a diner, you know? Yep. <laughs> like- but one day, one of the main guys, Oscar, was like, I mean, Oscar, that just tells you so much. The name, <laughs> yeah, His name yeah. is Oscar. He's like, do you have a YouTube or an Instagram? And I was kind of like, yeah, I do. And this was out of nowhere. Yeah. Never been there in drag. I mean, they recognized us because we go there so often, but yeah. we hadn't really ever had a conversation with them right. before. And uh, <laughs> so I give them on the back of a receipt, like my Instagram, and I'm like, I wonder what that was. And we were like in full cliffhanger mode. Because for- we're like, how would they know if you were a drag queen, if that's what they... Because that's what it seemed like. It seemed like they knew something. Yeah. You know? But we were like, there's no way. We've never gone in there and talked about drag. We've never gone there and drag. So I'm assuming that they're going to, like, figure out that they got the wrong person and then they're going to see this weird thing. And the next time I come back, they're going to throw food at me. You know what I mean? (laughs) They're going to be like, They're going to be like, we're macho. (laughs) We don't want drag queens here or something. Right, exactly. (laughs) So, Caitlin, then what happened ended up happening on, I guess, not yesterday, but the day before. Yeah. So, we go there and we're like, and I'm like, okay, this is going to be our first time seeing them since we gave them your Instagram. And, And then we walk in and they're like, oh, look who it is. We found your Instagram and, you know, you made over that Niall DeMarco guy. And like, so they like really did research. They like went way back on her Instagram. I think probably looked her up on YouTube. Yeah. And they were like so excited. And then do you want to do the next part? Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, Jorge. Yeah. They were like pointing to Jorge and they were like, he was looking so hard for your Instagram. He thought it was Miss Trucker. And he was looking for three days with sleepless nights looking for Miss Trucker. But then we told him it was Miss Cracker. And he was so excited. And he says for Halloween, he wants you to get him up and and get him in an outfit. I know. So we said that she would do it. Yeah. So hopefully, well, and now we went there today and they reminded, they were like, Halloween, it's coming. And it's like six months from now but <laughs> yeah. they i they're i feel like it might actually happen they oh. seem like they're they have not forgotten so jorge from our little diner is going to join us this halloween for yeah uh, and little... we still can figure it out we were wondering maybe if like one of them was gay and like recognized you out of drag mm-hmm. or something but they n- i don't know i mean i guess i'm stereotyping i guess but yeah. like none of them seem gay yeah yeah so we just can't figure out but they definitely they knew that you they were like we need to look up this person's instagram yep and i don't think it was because i just wanted this random person yeah right i I go around i forget that i have been on tv and people are just gonna recognize my face and the funny thing is it all started out caitlin as a hobby that's what drag was for me. Yeah. And now it is my my business and my way of connecting with the world, which brings us to our good news section, Caitlin. <laughs> Everybody, I want to dive into our serious groundbreaking interview, which I think today it might be serious and groundbreaking. Yeah. But first, I have a little treat for you. Every week, we do a little segment called Here's the Good News, where we share positive stories torn from the headlines. The idea is that they'll bring you, our listeners, a little hope during these difficult times. And this week, our news is all about side hustle. Okay, so here's the good news. During the pandemic, 
Six out of 10 people took their hobbies to a new level, gaining new skills or even making money off their hobby for the first time. That's right. They went from hobbyists to professionals. According to the Good News Network, a poll of 2,000 people found that 60% improved their skills in one or more of their hobbies since the start of the COVID-19 quarantines last March, and that 56% expect to be an expert by the time life returns to normal. So, Caitlin, people are getting their, their what do you call it, their grind on or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, um, it's, I don't know, like sort of baffling to me, sort of, because I feel like there's two conversations of like people like really hustling and like starting a second business. But then there's also the like conversation of like pandemic fog and like oh. being in a essentially a coma for a year. Right. And it's just interesting how I don't know. There's two paths people could have gone on, <laughs> I guess. On, yeah. I mean, you gave me that book, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. Yeah, which I still And I identified it with it. I identified <laughs> with it so much that I haven't even been able to finish it because I keep resting and relaxing uh, halfway through it. <laughs> also, everyone, if you like really weird, dark books, look that book up. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> My Year of Rest and Relaxation. It's yeah. so interesting. Um, but anyway, the typical survey respondent said that at the start of the quarantine, they would have ranked themselves as a one, meaning, yeah, I've heard about this hobby. Then 10 months later, the typical respondent ranked themselves as a three, meaning they are ready to talk about it on Instagram. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good uh, like measuring tool. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think the official survey used a different measuring tool, oh. but you know... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know I went from making model houses out of cereal boxes to building them out of popsicle sticks that I bought online. Now my model houses look like cute doll houses instead of recyclables. And that's a step from one to three, I think. Yeah, yeah. And you, Caitlin, changed from a passive reader to an aggressive reader. You read like one book a week and you are probably now more educated than I am. Yeah, I think my brain has just settled into like reading again. Mm -hmm. And now I can do two books a week. Oh my I god! Read so fast now, Caitlin. That is insane. <laughs> I know, and and I feel like I was always a really strong reader, but then just you know, you get to like your mid twenties, and you're like, I need to go out, and yeah. I don't read anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like now that my brain has like settled back into it over the past couple months, like now I'm getting really fast and it's crazy how many pages I get through in an hour. I need to train yeah. myself. <laughs> yeah. I need to train myself because I'm keeping to my thing. I said I was going to read a book a month. Yeah. And I have done on that and yeah. I just ordered a new book of poetry, which is like a get, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's like 50 pages and you're like, yeah, <laughs> I, I yeah. did it. But I just, I need to get up. Oh, to and you where know you what are. I uh, just read that you've been trying to get me to read forever. What? A room of ones own oh my god yeah it's an interesting thing it's really right? interesting yeah i didn't it was kind of different than what i expected but it was good Same. yeah 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 it's interesting how she shows side by side the resources that women don't get in comparison to the resources that men get especially with education yeah and also i thought it was gonna be more academic but it really starts just like with her her own journey of going through her head and her yeah as she like processes it and figures out like yeah. how women are kind of treated in the world and it's very like it, it was more a personal narrative than i thought yeah it would be yeah yeah and she's so 
like she starts the whole w- book with the word but which i think is mm-hmm. interesting like she's right in the middle of a thought and so you feel like you're just thinking along with her yeah yeah and i think that what's great about the book is that it's so beautifully done and you look inside her world what's horrible about the book is that it's still relevant today yeah you- I, that's what i was thinking i was reading it and i was like these things i i just feel like it's still the same yeah i'm not even like Oh, so much has changed, but these are still the same. I'm like, this is pretty much yeah. still exactly how yeah. it, it like how it is or how it feels yeah. to be a woman. Yeah. And there's some references to things, maybe some specific laws or, or habits that have changed yeah. allegedly, but really in practice. Like, right. Like on yeah. paper, it's changed, but the yeah. feeling women get inside, like as they're in the world, it's like, this is still the same. We've really gotten off track. Oh, but no, this is anyway, great. I okay. think this is absolutely <laughs> fabulous. No, it just goes to show that you have become a professional reader, oh, like, right, through the, right. the yeah, pandemic. Yeah. You really have. And anyway, according to Silhouette America, who commissioned the poll, getting better at hobbies is extremely beneficial. Mastering a new skill or craft feels empowering, said Silhouette America Marketing Officer Toshiyuki Unaki. It allows a person to take pride in what they are capable of accomplishing, which can transfer into stronger confidence in other areas of their life. When you can take on learning something new, it feels like you can take on anything. So I think that's so I think that's so true. Yeah. It really is. I Because I kind of feel that way with fitness, too. Right. Nutrition. Oh. Yeah. And fitness is another thing that you have become yeah. a professional at. Right. Again, in right. the, in the yeah. pandemic. And it does give, it gives me this sense of confidence. Same with, like, being able to read so, so many pages in an hour now. I'm yeah. Like, uh, I'm like, God, if only I could get it together in other areas of my life like I did with these two. Right. I mean, but that's huge progress. (laughs) And like, maybe that is the key to getting better at other areas of your life. Do you feel empowered knowing you can make popsicle houses? I actually, like, honestly, as weird as it sounds, I found out that anything I set my mind to and have interest in... I may not become great at it, but at least it will open a door to a brand new world. Yeah. And so it's like, I definitely did what the survey says. I went from step one to step three, not one to 10. Do you know what I mean? I didn't become like a professional miniature diorama builder, but I definitely learned enough about the miniature world to peek into it and see all the incredible things that people do. And that gave me another life. And It felt like there's other lives that are possible. And by the way, I just thought this was a really great story because I just answered a question about hobbies and passions on my new episode of Coffee with Cracker. Somebody asked me whether they should go and make their hobby their full-time job and get rid of their day job, or if it was too dangerous, or if it was too stupid and reckless. You know what I mean? So... I would love if you guys got to watch this Coffee with Cracker episode where we think about these kind of things, but you can only see it if you are a Patreon patron, if you are a member of our Patreon family. So if you are interested in seeing the new season of Coffee with Cracker, just go to Patreon, find me, and sign up at a a level that makes sense to you. And uh, I'll share with you more thoughts about hobbies and, you know, how you can make money and be a professional. That's right. Anyway, I'd love to talk about Virginia Woolf and (laughs) popsicle sticks and all of that forever, but Uh... we do have to take a little break.
Okay, we're back. Now, before we continue, let me say this. If you enjoy your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Caitlin, do we love reviews? We love reviews. We love reviews so much, <laughs> almost as much as we love five-star ratings. Which we love more than more than dogs, more than coffee. <laughs> more than all of those things yeah. combined. We would trade them all <laughs> for 24 hours. Um, right, yeah. <laughs> let's wild. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we love reviews so much. We're actually going to read some of our favorite reviews right at the end of the show. So leave us a review and we might read it and stay tuned to hear some of our favorite reviews right after this. But for now... It's time for us to bring on our very special guest today. And Caitlin, I have to tell you, since we're going into this interview right now, I am very intimidated by today's interview because she is so smart and she does so much. And you look at her Instagram and it's like, wow, I need to... I need to be putting out posts and content and like think pieces like this, you know? Oh, exactly. (laughs) So it's just like when I was putting the questions together, one of the big challenges was to say what she does because she is a writer. She is a director. She is an activist. She is a journalist. She's a host. She's so many things. And essentially her career is trying to make a difference in the world. And so we're going to talk to her today. Let's dive in. Everybody, I am so excited to welcome Sophia Lee. She is a Chinese-American multimedia journalist, film director, and climate optimist, which I want to talk about. Her mission is to humanize issues such as the climate crisis and social justice into digestible and accessible News. Teen Vogue, Refinery, and more have named her as a leader in the sustainability movement, from her work as a director of a short documentary on the biggest landfill in the U.S., to interviewing climate scientist Carlos Nobre, Nobel Peace Prize recipient, to deconstructing greenwashing myths in the fashion industry. Sophia's journalistic reporting has appeared in CNN, Vogue, and the United Nations. So basically, we do a podcast about incredible women, and this is an incredible woman. So, Sophia, welcome to She's a Woman. How are you doing today? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Oh, I love this title, She's a Woman. I feel like you need a jingle in the beginning. Do you guys have a jingle? Oh, we absolutely have a little jingle with some of the voices of some of our favorite lady heroes. So, yeah. I love it. I love it. The the jingle at the beginning is like more serious. It makes it sound like we're reporting live from the Capitol. Do you know what I mean? Just very... <laughs> reporting live from the White House. Exactly. Yeah, that's the vibes that we're trying to get. Because that's the vibes that a lot of our guests give us. So... I love that. What are you up to today? Oh, well, today is the day Fridays I leave for more fun things because it's Friday. So a lot of, I had a few different interviews. I have a panel later about sustainability. It's earth month this month, all of April's earth month. It's so funny how it's like earth day turned into earth month. And I'm like, it's literally should be every day, every year. (laughs) Right. Yes. But um, yeah, there's a lot of panels and discussions that I'm participating in today for Earth Month. I know that you've been extremely engaged with environmental and social justice issues at the same time. And 
that's what I want to talk about in this interview. But I want to ask you about your personal world first. How did you survive 2020? Like what kept you sane during the entire mess of the pandemic? Oof, that's such a good question. <laughs> You're um, like, I am insane. <laughs> I am insane. I haven't survived. I've thrived. No, um, I wish I could say that. There were some days I felt like I was thriving and some days I was like, 10 feet below water, barely swimming, barely yeah. floating. Yeah. So how, how did I survive? Well, one, I think the kind of foundational survival was just knowing that everything that I like, everything we want to have control over as a human, because a society what tells us how a capitalistic or consumeristic society should run what we should have control over. I just like at the beginning was like, I don't have control over anything and that's okay. Like just coming to terms with that, um, coming to terms with it's okay. If I don't have control over my schedule, my work, where the world is going, but I have control over where I am and my mental and physical and spiritual health. And that's the most important. So it's just like focusing on what I did and didn't have control over and it goes into very like stoic philosophy um, where like stoic philosophers only questioned what they actually could question and focus yeah. their energy on what they could yeah. have control over. And yeah. And so that was like the foundational was like not even try to expend energy on things that I couldn't even touch. That sounds so healthy because I don't know if you're a cat person, but for me, <laughs> My image of how I went through 2020 was, you know, when you try to pick a cat up off the sofa and she digs her claws into the fabric and you can pull as hard as you want, but you're just going to end up taking the sofa cushions with you because the cat <laughs> will not let go. And that was me. I was like, just, I fully believed that I would be able to control. I would get things back under control in some way. And I was just holding on to all these ideas and you couldn't peel me off of them. And I think it took me, Yes, it took me until 21 to like, let my claws go and just be like, oh my gosh, I can only control my attitude and how I see the world. I There are things in the world that I'm just not going to be able to, I'm just not going to be able to smooth over for myself. So yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. I think we were all the cats that at the beginning were like, Rawr! and we're like, and we're like, so digging in, we're like, trying to drag the couch which is like our life yes. and you were like we yeah. still got it yes. like, and it was like a slow meow until like 2020 where we're like exhausted we're like okay i give up i surrender take it i don't need it so do you feel like now that we're in 2021 we're up to the spring that you're feeling that things are paying off and that you're a little even more optimistic than you were yeah, I think I am almost optimistic to a fault because at the beginning, everyone was in fear mode and panic buying and toilet paper hoarding. And I was so optimistic about it. Um, almost not like in a toxic positivity way, but I was actually in China in January when Wuhan, the city went into lockdown. I was there for work with Nike directing a campaign on an Asian athlete for the Olympics that was supposed to be later on in 2020. Um, so I was oh with God. Nike, uh, like an entire team of Americans and I'm Chinese American. So, but during that one week, we went from operating as a crew 
and shooting everything. And by the end of the week, Wuhan had went into lockdown. Everyone was wearing masks on set. And then slowly all the Chinese provinces starting to go into lockdown. So when I came back to the U.S., I flew back like 12 hours before the U.S.-China travel ban. And I was like, phew, I'm like, okay, now I know how bad it can get. Like I, it stayed with me. I was, I wasn't like naive about it, but I was like optimistic. So I was like, okay, this is going to happen. But I was like ready almost. Oh, wow. And then people thought I was crazy because I was wearing face masks at the very, very beginning. And well, one, because I'm Asian, obviously, and wearing a face mask, everyone was like, oh, you have the virus. And I'm like, no, guys, I'm trying to keep you safe. I'm trying to keep all of us safe. That's probably the most intense and intimate experience of this pandemic that you could possibly have to just like see at the very beginning what was possible. And just to stay optimistic through that must take an incredible mindset, which is why I kind of want to dig into your brain a little bit. I want to rewind a little bit and look at your upbringing because you wrote a beautiful piece about it in Vogue. One of my favorite parts about this podcast, as I always say, is telling the stories of incredible women from the very beginning. And you were born in Minnesota, but moved to Shandong province in China at two. When you returned to the U.S. two years later, you basically had to relearn English and you were left feeling kind of like a stranger in your own home. And I was wondering if you could talk about that experience a little bit. Yeah, of course, for sure. So I think focusing on our upbringing is so important for everyone's individual and collective story. And unless we start to understand how our world was put together piece by piece as we were a child, we're not going to understand how we view this world now as an adult. And I didn't even realize that until my late 20s that I needed to like rewind and go back to this childhood moments and how it's impacted me so much. But it's basically, yeah. So I grew up learning both Chinese and English. But then when I spent two years in China, I was only with my grandparents and they only spoke Chinese. So when I came back to the US at four years old, I didn't know any English. I was behind in school. I had to relearn my ABCs. I was really shy and also very self-conscious about speaking English because I didn't speak it very well. So my communication skills were not so great. And I was really behind in school. And, but that gave me like what I thought was like one of my biggest weaknesses then gave me my superpower now, which is that I really try to listen to people because for many years as a child, when I was learning English and communicating, I just listened to people. That's all I could do. And I also knew what it was like not to have a voice. And I think that's really impacted me as a journalist today because I want to give issues and people that don't have a voice or platform that voice and really just listen to them, listen to their story and not try to put words in their mouth or have these preconceived notions of already understanding their story before they tell me. In your Vogue article, you wrote specifically also about something that that I don't think we think about enough. You didn't just get hate and bullying from bullies for being of Asian descent. You also got hate and inappropriate jokes from your friends. I was wondering if you could talk about some of the impact that that left on you in addition to already feeling like you were not quite at home, you know? Yeah, totally. Thank you, miss. Um, I mean, I think that, so I, I wrote in this article for Vogue that my childhood saying when I feel like this is a lot of child children saying when they're younger is to protect them. It's like that playground motto, 
sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And I would say that to myself as like a way to shrug off jokes from friends or like actual bullies when I'm younger. If they ask me, oh, do you eat dog or why are your eyes like this? And they do the slant and I would say, oh, your words can't hurt me. And then during the rise of the like anti-Asian hate crimes, both verbally and physically, I realized like words hurt. They start really young. They're embedded in us. And we think words don't hurt because we tell ourselves that they can't hurt us, but they do. They cut deep wounds and they snowball and fester into the perpetuation of the physical assaults that we see. The physical assaults don't just start from anywhere. They start from words. They start with Trump saying Kong flu and China virus and that week having 800 more hate crimes than we've ever more seen before, according to Stop AAPI Hate. Like it starts with these words and then it snowballs and festers into what we actually see in the news. So, what, what I was trying to get across is that words do hurt, words do mean a lot, they have weight to them, and we can't pretend like they don't, whether they're a joke or not. And we don't want to be perpetuating stigmas that hurt entire yeah. communities. I think that's such a important thing for listeners to hear. I think sometimes you say, oh, words don't hurt me, so I'm going to ignore this comment that someone said because I don't want to be weak. And I. it's not important. It's just something that they're throwing at me, and I'm stronger than that. But the, we all have a responsibility to say, actually, that did really hurt and be open about that because then we're actively participating in slowing that stuff down. It's so it's okay to say that you're hurt. You're not a, you're not a weak person. You're a person that's responding like you should, and you should be able to speak up. You should speak up about what yeah. hurts you. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And if we say, if we're the victims of these, uh, these verbal attacks and these words, if we don't tell the oppressor that it hurts or like the bully or even the friend whoever it may be that it hurts then they can't take responsibility for their words or actions either so because trump never apologized for saying and perpetuating oh saying china flu or kong flu he really hurt a lot of communities and he basically was showing that we don't have to take responsibility for our words or actions which is just not true you went through a number of challenges. And today you're a writer, director, host, and journalist, and an activist in every sense. Uh, You talk about everything from beauty and culture to justice and the environment. And I want to hear about the beginnings of that journey. Like, when did you realize you weren't going to take a typical path that you were going to make a path for yourself? Was there like a moment where you're like, oh, I'm not going to fit into a regular mold? Yeah, well... Definitely not just a regular mold, but also I think any person who is a first generation and has immigrant parents or is an Asian understands that when I was younger, I was not good at school because I mean, one, the language barrier, I finally, then when I finally got the language down, math and science were not my, were not my subjects, which is so I, you too, you're like, same yes. girl, me too. <laughs> Were you bad at math and science? Oh, like when it came to the humanities, I was always like in the 97th percentile when it came to testing. And then in math and science, I was like, it was like something like 78% of the nation always did better than me in, in those so- areas. 
78% yeah, like, of the nation did better than me. I was better than you. I think you said 78%. Okay, got it. No, I was like, it was today. alarming. Look at me yes. today. Uh, uh, so anyway, you were saying. Yeah, so the most, like, I guess, ironic thing I get was that my parents are, their professions, my dad is a neuroscientist. My mom is a biostatistician. So it's like math and science is like the creme de la creme. They like wanted me higher education, math and science. It was like the thing they were pushing me for. I just never, it just never clicked for me. And I I'm saying this because I think when I was younger, there was so much shame almost for not liking these subjects. There was like shame for wanting to be creative, for loving singing and dancing and theater and art and storytelling and photography and you know creativity was like was definitely encouraged but not encouraged at as long as my grades were good you know and all the other subjects it was like the the aftermath if math and science and all that was up to par yes and I I even remember when I turned 13, I was telling my partner this other day when I turned 13 my worst birthday because I got math books for my birthday (laughs) And I was like, so devastated because I was like, is this what it's like to be a preteen now just to like get math books for your birthday? And I'm saying all of this because I really didn't do well in school. Even in high school, I feel like I was, I was fine. I was like a little above average, but you know, just average and grades wise. And I ended up going to an art school called Virginia Commonwealth University, VCU. It's the number one public art school in the U.S., and I was just like, as soon as I went there and I studied arts and journalism and storytelling and fashion, I immediately was like, oh, wow, this is where I'm supposed to be. I didn't have to fight. It was like harmonious. Like it just clicked. And I feel like there's going to be a lot of times as we grow up, society, parents, whatever is going to tell you, you should be X, Y, Z and fit in this box. But if that doesn't feel right to you, like keep fighting it there, you'll be able to find your box and it'll be so much more harmonious and it'll be like, oh, and you'll just know that that's like your path, you know? Yeah, no, that's so important. And when you're not in the right place for you, you don't tend to thrive. So a lot of people think if I'm not thriving, that means I'm stupid. And, or if I'm not thriving, that means I'm not working hard enough or blah, 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 blah. And they blame themselves. But sometimes it's the situation that's failing you. It's the school that's failing you. Or it's just like you're in a math classroom and you math is not your, that is not fertile soil (laughs) for your soul. So it's just like, don't take failure as a sign that you're going to be a permanent failure forever. Because I had done that. (laughs) Yes, that's what I tell all the college students that reach out to me, I'm like, fail upwards, because every time you fail, you'll like learn a little bit more about yourself, what doesn't work. And actually, you'll like one of my favorite quotes is like, if you judge a fish by how fast it can walk, like you'll never learn its talents or abilities. And that's wow. all of us. It, maybe you were born a beautiful starfish or a beautiful whale or shark and everyone else yeah. are just like land creatures. And that's totally cool. One of a turning point for you must have been, uh, you were the former entertainment media editor at Vogue.com where you worked on creating and launching Vogue's social and digital presence, which is huge. Can you talk about the impact of working at Vogue on your career and your outlook? Yeah, totally. That was like, sometimes I look back on that and I was like, wow, the timing and everything, it just like 
was just so beautiful. Like it was like written in the stars or something, but I feel very grateful for that experience. I came on to Vogue.com when Vogue.com was, it was in 2013, I believe. And Vogue.com was just a website that I like had a few, a handful of articles that repurposed the magazine stories. It wasn't an, even its own entity. And so I started working as a freelancer there. I was making like, I think like literally $10 an hour, <laughs> like minimum, minimum wage yep. as a freelancer. And I did that for one year. And then I got hired on as masthead and masthead means in the editorial world means like your name gets on the, it's like editor in chief and it gets there. So my name was like, you know, 0.5 centimeters tall in that magazine. And I was like, yes. the most glorious moment. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Ah. And then I was there like for four years, over four years. And so much happened. I started off as like, was part of the first 10 full-time employees on the website, um, worked with the team there that really solidified what both digital and social voice was. I got to bring in so many different projects that I feel like really inspired me. Like there was this one project where I brought in Celine Dion and we um, did a whole couture shoot in Paris and we did a whole video and that was so beautiful and inspiring. And there were so many moments like that. But then at the end, I think this is another thing I tell people is that sometimes you have dreams and they've been your dreams for so, so long. And then your dreams expire and then you get another dream, but we've, we hold on to our original dream so much because we're like worked so hard to get there in the first place, or we'd right. never imagined we would have even gotten there that we don't make space to move on to our next dream. The universe is like, okay, you need to move on to this next thing. And we're still clinging to the first dream and suffocating it. And it took a long time, but I knew for a while that, I had got, I like in the digital internet space, four years is a long time. Um, yeah. Seen it grown so much, but I had gotten the most out of it and it was time to move on. But it was, I was so scared. Like I had so much fear, but it was like another dream is waiting. Like you don't just have one dream in life. You have all multiple, multiple dreams and we got to keep following them. And I feel like sometimes it's, you're like, I just got here though. Like, give me a break. But it's like, nope, on to the next. I mean, I think I went through that with, drag race as a drag queen, I was just running so hard towards getting on drag race. And then I got on and then I was running so hard towards being on all stars as far as like keeping my face out there, keeping my name out there. And now I think I'm in one of those periods of my life where I'm like, what is the next dream for me? Because I did two things that mean so much to me. And now I have to figure out our identity is so based around what we're working towards and what our dreams are. And like, I feel like I need to make a new dream for myself so that I can be somebody like I, you know, have been, like I was when I was working. Yeah. You are, are you kidding me? You are the somebody. Oh my goodness. What a, ladies and gentlemen, one of our smartest guests. <laughs> I think that's the thing is that we're always searching for who we need to be, but we forget that like, we're already there, you know, like we are evolving, but our, you're already there. You're already evolved and that can change too. That's interesting. That's an interesting thing to think about as well, because I think that a lot of my 
friends that I see working the hardest to prove that they're incredible are the ones that are just naturally incredible. I'm like, you don't need to prove it. You actually are that way. You can just breathe and and be yourself. Wow. Yes. Yes. You're already more than enough, right? Yeah. You're already more than enough. Now, for my friends who are listening, here are the following friends that need to try harder. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So you know who you are, actually. You know know exactly. You know who you are. No, you create some incredible content as a director now. And a leg of that is you're a very passionate advocate for the environment. Recently, you made a beautiful and somehow optimistic mini doc about landfills of all things. Can you remember what first turned you on to environmental issues, like a moment or experience where you knew that was going to be part of your arsenal of activist issues that you wanted to really like buckle down on? Yeah, well, I think that sustainability, even before I knew what that meant, because that word has only existed in like the mass vernacular for like the past few years. But I always grew up with this understanding that sustainability is this symbiotic relationship with mother nature, because my parents grew up in very rural areas in China. They come from like farming communities. They have this understanding with land and food. And my grandparents are Buddhist and that's a very Buddhist like view, like idealistic. So sustainability has always been ingrained in me, but I think I didn't even know it was called that too, sustainability. But I think one of the bigger moments was I also then grew like went back to China almost every summer. And I firsthand experienced just in a very few short years, like from middle school to high school, that the bigger cities like Beijing, Shanghai were getting so condensed with pollution and fog that you would rarely ever see a blue sky or blue sky would be a really, it would be a gift, would be a treat. And when my older sister a few years ago got married in the North of San Francisco on the coastline, we had some Chinese relatives come out and they were taking pictures of the sky instead of like the rugged coastline with the oceans. And I was like, why aren't you guys taking pictures of this? It's so beautiful. Yeah. And they're like, look at the sky. It's so blue. It's so clear. It's so beautiful. And it was, that was such a moment where I was like, wow, like the, our future in the global North is on par with experiencing the climate crisis in a way where we will, we might like our children or maybe just even 10 years, we might not see a blue sky like that could be a rarity. And it just, it made it so much more real and being like, okay, this is happening now. Like the climate crisis is here. It's just not happening to all of us at the same time. And what's really incredible about your work is that you see where social issues and environmental issues meet each other, which is, I think a lot of people have a misconception that you either care about people and racial justice and social justice, or you care about the trees and that the two (laughs) don't meet. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that intersectionality, because I think it expands your mind to think about that a little bit. Yeah, that like racial justice is climate justice. Climate justice is racial justice. They're so interconnected. And environmental racism is a huge thing. If we just want to look at like from a zoomed out perspective, the global north, which is which are mostly of the Western countries, have contributed to the majority of the climate crisis as we know it, like the greenhouse gas emissions. But the global south are 
right now living with the climate crisis, like the climate changes, like the climate disasters, the floods, all of that, the rise in temperatures, when they had the least impact on the climate crisis. So that in itself just shows how humanity and the climate goes hand in hand. Um, yeah. And you can't like care for, I mean, I take a very spiritual approach to it too. And like almost science even proves this, but you can't care about just the trees and not care about the people who are in those communities also taking care of the trees. And I think at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone was saying nature is healing itself. Humans are the virus, but actually that's a very colonial way of thinking about it because the indigenous communities have always lived in equilibrium with mother nature since the beginning of time. There's this incredible statistic where indigenous communities are only they are, they only make up less than 5% of the entire world's population, but they are responsible and they take care of 80% of our world's biodiversity and nature. So it just shows that it's not humans that are the virus. It's capitalism, colonialism, consumerism that we have accepted as the norm. Those are the virus. That's, it's so incredible. And as, I, as you were talking, I was thinking about the word compassion and that they both fall under the, under this umbrella of compassion and that if you care about the environment and are truly compassionate for it you recognize that we're uh, a, a part of it and that all of that is going to fall under the same mindfulness yes 100% when people are like what's the first thing i should know when i want if i want to start my sustainability journey and yeah. i think most people are like go zero waste stop eating meat and i'm like none of that i'm like Get in touch with spirituality, get in touch with yourself and mother nature, because if you are aware that we are, we ourselves are mother nature, then there's no separateness. There's no, like, I'm going to destroy the world because I'm, an, I'm actually destroying myself, like yeah. my, what I'm connected to. So once you understand that framing, then it becomes, you're so much more empowered and then you operate you your relationship with the climate crisis is then rooted in love and abundance whereas usually the climate crisis is rooted in fear and scarcity it's like our house is on fire fear scarcity there's not enough time there's not enough resources and that's a yeah. whole different energetic frequency that ends up like freezing us into inaction and more apathy and anxiety so i want to talk to you a little bit about that because one of the things that intrigues me about you is your love of environmental optimism, which I'm like, I'm in, the, I'm in that house is on fire mode where I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, we are burning the forest. We're causing mass extinction. Everything's on fire. We're all going to die. So in my mind, I'm like, oh, if I terrify myself enough, then I'm going to make a change in the world. But you disagree. Can you tell me how environmental optimism is a better path for you? Yeah. And when I say environmental optimism, climate optimist, I'm also very realistic because I'm in the right. space, but you could be optimistic and realistic. That doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. And so the doom and gloom or the climate apocalypse, the like countdown, we only have eight years left, seven years left, our house is on fire. Like that mindset actually has scientifically been proven by this social psychology professor called Cameron Brick at the University of Amsterdam. And she found that that kind of mindset really 
puts us into a uh, a state of despair, despair and a state of inaction and apathy. I feel like so energized by all of this because in 2021, I've talked about this on the podcast before, you know, I am a lady of Jewish descent and culturally, I think there's a lot of pessimism and skepticism built into like my view of the world. And I'm just trying to see how doing what you're saying, being a realist, but an optimist at the same time can sort of like unlock me from some of my despairs and feelings of certain doom. You know what I mean? So I really love hearing you talk about that. And because you're so good at giving people a sense of hope and um, giving people a sense that there can be change, I do want to talk to you about one of the issues that you've been really so vocal about lately, which is violence against people of Asian descent. What is something, let's say I'm a listener in middle America or a listener in... Los Angeles or a listener in Philadelphia, what's something I can turn off my phone and do right away after this podcast to make a difference? Thank you so much for this question. I think that the most impactful thing anyone can do individually is to have such a brutal and raw conversation with themselves of how am I feeding into the institution of systemic racism. How, what are my subconscious biases? What are my shortcomings? What are my preconceived notions? How am I perpetuating everyday racism, casual racism, microaggressions? And I'm not saying this because, and I, you know, I think everyone is racist. I'm saying this because we are all byproducts of a society that has survived on systemic racism. So to think that we, our oneself, it we're lucky enough to bypass an entire society, you know, like that's not possible. Like, right, um, <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, and I think you know, everyone knows that gender is non binary in a spectrum, like, racism is a spectrum, it's not like, oh, I'm not gonna punch an Asian elder down to the street into their death, so obviously, I'm not racist, but what if you make bad jokes, or what if you have contributed this? in an unknowing way, you know, like we really need to peel back all those layers. Like, yes, you might not do this extreme form of physical assault, but there is a whole spectrum there that we can all acknowledge. And even for myself and all of my friends who are people of color, we have, we have these very honest conversations with ourselves because a lot of the time society, you grew up with society telling you, you need to hate or look down other communities so you can yeah. fit better so you can be assimilated better that's the whole mo- model minority myth is that the asians are model minorities but that's basically pitting us against other communities of color right. and that in itself are racial biases that i needed to uncover and go through on my own or also because i'm an american i'm a chinese american do i look at mainland Chinese people when they're in New York City and they're in a tourist group, like, do I look at them with any prejudice? You know, like they're, it's so nuanced, but any small, subtle detail, like that honest conversation with yourself, that awareness, that's the most important thing that you could do right now. What you're making me think is that one of the best things in that conversation is to be open to changing 
yourself as well. There's nothing shameful about changing. You should be changing all the time. So if you look in and you find something about yourself that is out of date, <laughs> like you don't have to be like, well, that's just who I am. You know, I'm me. I'm all, there's nothing shameful about changing and becoming someone new. And if you look back on yourself 10 years ago, and you don't see any difference between your current self and your 10 years ago self, or you're not embarrassed by your 10 years ago self, then something is very wrong. You should look yes. at your 10 year old, yes. like 10, 10 years ago self and be like, oh my God, I've changed so much since then. So yes. and that's get that beautiful. rolling. And that's, that is nature. Like, have you ever seen nature be stagnant and not go through seasons, not have leaves shed and spring and blossom in the spring like if nature is constantly evolving and shifting like you cannot expect humans to be stagnant forever either and we should be you know we're we are nature so we should have that evolvement just as much yeah so speaking of evolution you mentioned having a million dreams and i just wanted to know uh, what's what dream is next for you? What's the thing that is is kind of on the back burner now that you're working on next in the story of Sophia? Ooh, well, a really excited dream that I've been working on for quite some time now is coming to fruition this month on April fifteenth. I worked on a sh a climate news show called All of the Above with. My partner and my partner in crime in the show called Celine Simon. She's incredible. She's the founder of environmental nonprofit Slow Factory. And we created a show that reports on the climate in a digestible, accessible way that's not like doom and gloom and a climate apocalypse, like everything we're talking about, and showing that all of the above, like we need to approach the climate from a spectrum of answers. Yeah. And we also, so the climate crisis is the most pressing issue we're facing today. Any, every industry, every indi individual we're facing. And yet in 2020, there's a stat that climate was only reported on 0.4% in all of the news in 2020. And when yeah. they report on climate, it's like this wildfire is happening in California, et cetera. It's like climate news, but it doesn't zoom out of it in a way. It's like, oh, how does that wildfire impact me if I live on the East Coast? Or how does that flood in South Asia impact me? Because it actually impacts us all the time. Yeah. When the Amazon rainforest was on fire for months during 2018, that impacted how much water the Sierra Nevada mountains got. And the Sierra Nevada mountains is a huge water reserve and source for all of the California agriculture. We eat all of the agriculture and food that's sourced from there because California is the biggest supplier of avocados, fruit, like you name it in the US. So like it's con the climate crisis is affecting us. We just can't see it. And we need to, we're connecting the dots. We're connecting the dots because it's a lot to process and no one has time for it. And we're trying to make it fun and sexy and um, exciting and be like, yes, we want to love mother nature. We want to have this relationship with her. We call it mother nature's talk show because no one has ever given mother nature a freaking mic or a platform to be like, what would you say, you know, instead of like our humans thinking we have all the answers. Well, everybody be on the lookout for that. I know I will because 
part of this podcast every week is we share good news and it seems like you'll be having some optimistic stories out of that as well. So I want to thank you so much for joining us. I am going to tell people that you are on the Council of Intersectional Environmentalist and that you're a board member of environmental nonprofit Slow Factory. So if people are interested in those, they can look them up and support um, because we always want our listeners to support the projects that our guests are a part of. But I just think that you talk about social justice and the environment in such a passionate but hopeful way. I can't imagine a better guest for our podcast than you. And thank you for joining us today. Oh, Nick, thank you so much. It's such an honor, such a pleasure. Like, seriously, I've loved watching you from the get-go. And I, you are already there wherever you want to be. I feel like you're already accomplishing so many dreams. And I just, like, when you're talking about that, I was like, if, you know, it's one of those things where your friends, you're like, if your friends, if you saw yourself through your friend's lens, you'd be like, wow, that's like how I feel about you. Oh my God. Thank you. And I, w- I want to give the same back to you. So if you ever have a discouraging day, damn it, just, just zoom me. Damn it, zoom me. I'm in the Bronx. Exactly. I'll wear pink. It'll be great. All right, Caitlin, that was our interview for the day. And boy, does she make complicated, difficult things sound hopeful and optimistic. Yeah, and that's hard because I feel like with everything that's happening to the like the earth and to America and just everything, it's so easy to feel doom and gloom. It's how it's my like default state. Oh, so absolutely. just to kind of like hear um, someone as bubbly and positive as she is makes me you know, feel like I need to rethink my headspace, you know? (laughs) Oh, and she is so smart that you are immediately bowled over. You're like, well, if this intelligent person can be optimistic, I'm pretty sure that I'm like just pessimistic and dumb and I need to change my (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, absolutely wonderful. Everyone follow Sophia Lee and support her. We'll be putting her and some of her projects up on the She's a Woman podcast Instagram. She's a Woman podcast, all one word. And I'm really excited. And I want to get to our review for the day. But before we do that, let's take a little break. Okay, we're back. All right. First of all, I want to say this again. If you liked your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much, we're going to read some of our favorite reviews right here at the end of the show. Caitlin, do you have a favorite review this week? Yes. This one is talking about um, an episode from a couple weeks ago with Noelia Zork. And they say, informative and timely. Listening to Dr. Zork helped me to realize how important it is to listen to an esteemed medical professional in order to make informed decisions. This podcast was engaging and challenged us as women to seek support. Her story was inspiring. Oh, my God. That makes me so happy. I love when people tell us about specific episodes. That way we know where we're doing it right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and it makes me feel like they're really listening yeah really engaged you know I mean? and they're, yeah. yeah so they have guests that they've really connected with you know what i mean it's just i love it yeah and we get a lot of feedback listeners from our guests saying that you are really engaging with them so we appreciate that so much keep it up and we will keep bringing you incredible women every week but 
Enough about that, Caitlin. It's time for the credits. This podcast, <laughs> this podcast was produced by Caitlin Gretham, and then I did it. The cast includes me and also Caitlin, and it is distributed by the amazing Studio 71. So thank you for joining us today. Make sure to tune in next Monday for another exciting episode. And remember, if you ever feel down, all you have to do is look in the mirror and say, She's a woman! And I'll be with you. I am so caffeinated right now. It's crazy. <laughs> I feel like I was like tripping over my words in that interview because I was like. <laughs> That's me being too cool. <laughs> <laughs>